My colleague, the Reverend Elizabeth Stevens, is the minister of the UU congregation in Moscow, Idaho. And Wednesday morning, after reviewing the results of the midterm elections, she was inspired to write this poem. She says, I know that some of you are hoping for a once and done, for an earthquake, a tidal wave, hoping that if we gave it our all, a single push would be enough, that after this we could sink back into the status quo, back into the comfort of our privileges, even knowing that those privileges look different for different ones of us. She says, I'll confess in the secret corner of my heart, I wanted to believe it was that easy, that justice could emerge fully grown and not with wet down and weak wings. But beloveds, we're chipping away at a mountain, not a boulder, at calcified structures created to oppress beliefs that some are not worthy, that some deserve power by virtue of who they are. Erosion, it turns out, is slow work. But we need to celebrate the triumphs, the progress, celebrate those heartbreaking almosts, even. We need to breathe. We need to rest for a time. But then we need to get up and turn again toward kindness, turn again toward that neighbor in need, toward those still trapped in the stone who need you to say, I won't give up, I am with you, and together we will keep moving forward until the mountain finally crumbles to dust. Reverend Stevens is right that on the other side of election day, many mountains of oppression remain in place, but there are signs of erosion, signs of movement, signs of progress. At least 100 women won house races this year, with 35 women newly elected and 65 incumbents. That bests the previous record of 85. Sharice Davids and Deb Haland will become the first Native American women elected to Congress. That is both deeply joyful to me and deeply heartbreaking. Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar will become the first Muslim women in Congress. Colorado's Jared Polis will become the first openly gay man elected governor. Uh, Some of you may also have seen, to really kind of zoom in close, Harris County in Texas, uh, one of our largest counties in the U.S., had 17 black women lawyers elected to new judgeships. And they all sort of independently started running and then all of a sudden realized and started campaigning together. But that's that's remarkable, uh, one among many remarkable signs of hope and change this election season. As part of my own processing, honestly, part of my own kind of mental health preparing for whatever happened in the election is I've been reading the book, History Teaches Us to Resist, How Progressive Movements Have Succeeded in Challenging Times by Dr. Mary Frances Berry. And part of her point is that kind of every time is a challenging time. Some are just more and less challenging. 
Uh, this book was published this year by the Unitarian Universalist Association's own Beacon Press. Uh, just a quick side note, I get no money kickbacks from Beacon Press, but I will just say in general, they are remarkable. Uh, we should be proud of them. Uh, if you're ever in need of a book uh, that's inspiring, that's socially relevant, Beacon Press is just regularly publishing incredible things all the time. Dr. Berry is an African-American activist and historian. She currently serves as professor of American social thought, history, and Africana studies at the University of Pennsylvania. And consonant with that poem from Reverend Stevens that we began with, a core theme of Dr. Berry's work is that each generation has the responsibility to make a dent in injustice. You may not like Kool-Aid Man, anybody with me, bust right through that brick wall, but can you make a dent in it? What brick can you help Jenga-like, you know, move forward that that tower may eventually topple? She emphasizes from a historical perspective that it is clear, history shows us again and again, that no matter who wins a given election, and don't get me wrong, it does matter who wins, but uh, from a historical perspective, no matter who wins, there is work to be done. Now, if your favorite candidate loses, the fact that there's more work to be done is pretty painfully clear. But even if one of your favorite candidate wins, the one that feels really in line with your values, history shows us that such elected representatives need continuing um, advocacy and support to get actual legislation passed. You know that old joke of why do you always see politicians with their finger up? It's because in D.C. it's because they're trying to see which way the wind's blowing. You know, we've got we've to keep the wind blowing to, give the, to keep the political will building to get the actual work of justice done. And Dr. Berry's book traces movements for social progress over the past century through both conservative and liberal administrations. I'll share just a few examples in the hope they can inspire our ongoing actions for peace and justice. First, as we hear some progressive politicians today talking about the need for a new New Deal or a Green New Deal, it may be instructive to look back on some of the lessons from the original New Deal under FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Note that from Barry's perspective, we could actually um, map many of the same points, trace many of the same lines that I'm about to make about FDR. We could do the same thing with like President Obama with the Dakota Access Pipeline and many other um, similar patterns that, as the saying goes, history doesn't always repeat itself, but it does tend to rhyme. So as we remember that FDR was sworn in as the 32nd president of the United States in 1933, he was in office for more than a decade until his death in 1945, just 11 weeks into his fourth term as president. Now, it's significant to note that FDR is the the only U.S. president to serve more than two terms. For anyone feeling alarmed, if you feel any rising anxiety at the thought of a four-term president. Uh, You can't do that anymore. Uh, After FDR's death, uh, a few years later, uh, we ratified the 22nd Amendment, which uh, set a two-term limit on U.S. presidents. Prior to FDR, there had just been this convention uh, modeled by George Washington that presidents would demur from running for any more than two terms. So perhaps our first takeaway from history is that when presidents transgress what have been kind of significant significant but mere conventions, it's time to pass laws and amendments that prevent further such actions. But I bring up FDR primarily because he is remembered as both a great president and as a progressive president. 
Yet history shows us that creating social change required much more than just electing a progressive politician. To consider the specific angle of racial justice, there were on one hand ways that FDR was thought of in his time as an ally for racial justice. After his 1936 election, FDR named the first black federal judge. He also officially denounced lynching, and he appeared publicly comfortable with all people irrespective of race. That's not insignificant for FDR. He was you know, president three decades before the official end of Jim Crow laws. On the other hand, one big ask from racial justice advocates at the time was for FDR to issue an executive order ending defense industry employment exclusion so that those jobs would be accessible to all people regardless of race. Behind this demand for change was the African-American organizer A. Philip Randolph. Some of you may know that name. At first, after meeting in person with FDR in late September 1940, Randolph and his delegation were pretty hopeful. So FDR had this track record, the first black federal judge, these other things we've seen. He was seemed really comfortable in person with them and gave them some signs that it would uh, that he would be supportive of this request to move toward the full desegregation of the military. Event was the long-term goal. But although the president was sympathetic to their position, it uh, he uh, turns out he was also courting white segregation that he thought he needed to win his election for his third term. So in October, uh, in between their meeting and the November election, the White House issued a statement reinforcing the standing policy of racial segregation in the military. FDR was in many ways a progressive president, but Randolph was nevertheless then left to discern, well, what do I do now to try to force the president's hand? And even though more people associate the March on Washington with the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s 1963 I Have a Dream speech, that protest owed its origins to an earlier March on Washington movement um, created by A. Philip Randolph uh, two decades earlier. And so in late January 1941, Randolph announced his intention to organize 10,000 African Americans, which in his words, quote, would wake up and shock official Washington as it had never been shocked before. It turns out Randolph was wise and right. Even the possibility of such a march spurred FDR to action. An executive order was signed and the march was canceled. Progress was made toward decreasing racial discrimination in federal hiring practices, uh, although it was not until Truman was president and the Korean War that enforcement of desegregation in the military officially began. Now, there are quite a few lessons here. One lesson is that although progress occasionally comes quickly, it more often arrives in these fits and starts over activism over many years. Another lesson is the need to vary our strategies. Note that Randolph's idea of this massive one-day nonviolent protest, we're going to bus in 10,000 African-Americans and then we're going to protest and we're going to go home the next day, that was so innovative at the time that the threat to do it was enough to accomplish their goals. They had planned to do it in July and you know the executive order was signed, so they canceled the march. But notice that politicians have been increasingly inoculated against that form of protest. So reminding us that we need to bring imagination and creativity to our actions for peace and justice. To shift our focus forward a a few decades, there's an enormous amount to say about social protest movements around the Vietnam War. I'll draw our attention just to one story from our own UU history that has another significant lesson for us today. 
Uh, it can be really easy to feel overwhelmed by politics. And when I feel that way, I try to keep in mind the wise advice of one of my seminary ethics professors who used to always ask us, you know, if you're feeling overwhelmed, ask yourself this question. What is the one next right thing for me to do, especially within my spheres of influence? You know, where do I actually have influence in this world? Who do I know? Uh, so it can be easy to think, you know, there's nothing I can do about this problem. But if you pause to reflect, take a, take a you know, 30-minute walk and get, let your mind kind of free associate, you'll usually find, I have found, that something will come to mind. One person that you can talk to, to have coffee with or lunch with. One letter you can write. One action you can take. And after that, what's the next right move? And the next and the next. And what we will often find is that unforeseen possibilities will begin pre- Um, presenting themselves as you take those little steps and all of a sudden some connection will open up or some opportunity. Along those lines, the particular story I have in mind from the Vietnam era is is part of what's depicted in the film uh, The Post. Did you see that last year? Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks. I see a few, few hands out there. All right. Uh, if not, it's really worth seeing. It's about the Washington Post experience publishing excerpts from the Pentagon Papers against intense pressure from the government not to. The Pentagon Papers contained classified details, the truth about the U.S.'s role in the Vietnam War. And when no publisher could be found to publish not just those excerpts, but the full Pentagon Papers, um, Senator Mike Gravel, one of the two Unitarian Universalists in the Senate at the time, asked the UUA's own Beacon Press to take on this risk, and they bravely did. It's an example of, you know, Beacon Press couldn't end the Vietnam War. Senator Mike Gravel could not end the Vietnam War. But what Gravel could do is read parts of the Pentagon Papers into the congressional record. What Beacon Press could do is publish the Pentagon Papers. Uh, so it was the right thing to do, but there were serious consequences. So I don't want us to miss, miss that doing the right thing doesn't mean that everything's just going to be all cupcakes and unicorns, right? Uh, so, and, and as, as was found by many individual protesters during the Vietnam War who faced serious jail time for various um, protests. In this case, President Nixon personally attacked Beacon Press. J. Edgar Hoover approved a FBI subpoena of the entire Unitarian Universalist Association's um, bank records. Uh, Beacon Press and Senator Mike Gravel also lost their Supreme Court case. So as we heard this story this morning about the notorious RBG, uh, you know, it, it matters who Supreme Court justices are, right, and how those court cases go. So having lost that Supreme Court case, there was a real vulnerability to, to prosecution and that the UUA and Beacon Press could have gone bankrupt. Uh, ultimately, one thing saved them, Watergate. Uh, the Watergate break-in, when that was discovered in June of 1972, uh, vindicated Beacon Press's position and the government harassment ended. So there are many more examples from history to share, but I hope my basic point is clear that from FDR to Nixon to every politician in between and beyond that, no matter who wins any given election, we must continue to act individually and collectively within our spheres of influence if we do want to turn our dreams into deeds. Now, as I move toward my conclusion, I'll share with you that in the wake of the election, uh, there's one other book that I was reading and finding helpful, also coincidentally published this year by Beacon Press. It's titled Unapologetic, A Black Queer Feminist Mandate for Radical Movements. It's by the community organizer on the south side of Chicago, Charlene Carruthers. 
And what interests me most about her work is her call, again, regardless of what politicians win any given election, to dream big, to dream about what it really would look like for what is sometimes called collective liberation. What would it really look like for everyone to get free, to everyone to really have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? What might it mean, for instance, to take seriously the insights of Dr. King and other peace activists, that the ultimate weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral that begets the very thing that it seeks to destroy. So just to see the ways in which every time we sometimes feel like we have to, and often I feel like we do in the short time, have to use violence to um, suppress something that's evil and threatening, we unintentionally in many ways sow the seeds of future violence. In King's words, returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. So he called us from darkness to light and from hate to love. Uh, What then might it mean to try to find a better way? Uh, Carruthers is one among many 21st century activists. They don't have all the answers, but they're seriously seeking alternatives to violence that would offer us safety and accountability without relying on the tools of alienation, punishment, state, systemic violence. And for her, that includes incarceration and policing. What might it begin to imagine a different world? No one's saying that the journey to such a future will be easy or simple, but something like what Carruthers has in mind I do think is implied by our UU6 principle of a genuine world community with peace, liberty, and justice, not merely for some, but for all. And I think we saw actually a glimpse of what that looks like this Tuesday when Florida voters approved an amendment to restore the right to vote for felons who have served their time. That's just a glimpse of what such a world can look like. So collective liberation, it doesn't come as a once and done. It doesn't come as a single push. It doesn't come as an earthquake or a tidal wave. When we try to do that, revolutions that try to do that, history has often shown us they just set the seeds again of future violence. Justice does not emerge fully grown. But we are chipping away at the mountains of injustice, and we will keep on moving forward, and I'm grateful to be with you all on that journey. So even as we rightly celebrate the love that you have in your heart right now, the hope that maybe you can begin to glimpse, the peace that maybe you have even amidst challenges, the joy that you have for the things in your life, Uh, Even as we can already find that, I invite us also to open our hearts, to open our minds to what more hope, love, peace, and joy might we find both for ourselves and for all people, for this better world that we long for, that we deserve, not only that we deserve, but that our children deserve and that our children's children deserve. share with you just one more uh, thought. One of the questions that I've heard people asking uh, repeatedly and different people in different situations over the past few months is, should we have hope in the future? Uh, I think yes is the short answer. Uh, The uh, slightly longer answer is that that question has made me think of an interview, a famous interview with Robert Frost, the poet, who was asked that same question, you know, do you have hope in the future? Now, it was a different situation that he was uh, answering about, but I think his answer is helpful. He said, not only do I have hope in the future, 
I have hope in the past. And I think he meant a few different things by that. I think he, um, but one of them is that the hope, our hope in the past can be learning to tell our history differently learning to be more honest about our transgressions, and that can make a lot of difference in the present and in the future. Also, in learning to tell different parts of our history that have been uh, less told or been deprecated, and to lift those parts up and to let some parts go that have maybe been told in less helpful ways. So I think not only should we have hope in the future, but we should have hope in, in telling our past better and differently. And so as you go into um, the next few days, as you continue to wrestle with your story, with our story collectively, may you continue your journey in love. Care for one another and care for this one earth. Do justice and make peace. And as you go, whatever taste or touch you have in this time and place of hope, of love, or peace, or joy, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. May you live boldly. May you live with thanksgiving.